0: Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. Nehemiah continues to just be a rich resource for us and giving us uh, wonderful lessons about ministry, stewardship, life um, in general. And thankful that we're going through the book and uh, doing it in a context that's not all about a building campaign or raising money of any kind, but rather just a heart to try to understand. The word. Just want to remind you, we ended up in Nehemiah because we just finished Job. And so the first book of the Old Testament written. Nehemiah, the last historical book. Uh, and so it just gives us wonderful bookends of uh, the Old Testament in general to help us understand. This morning, as we come to chapter five, um, big picture view. Uh, chapters three and chapter three saw the start of the building of the wall. Chapter four saw all the opposition from without. Um, And so you have uh, Sambalat and Tobiah and and Geshem the Arab, and they're beginning to mount their forces, and they're bringing discouragement. Uh, And now chapter 5 begins to unpack kind of opposition from within, problems in the city itself that are arising among the Jews that are supposed to be rebuilding the wall and all the conflict that can happen. Uh, Darren is absolutely right in the sense of playing together, praying together, uh, serving together, doing ministry together helps to knit hearts Together. Uh, The downside of that is we're all still fleshly people. And even if none of you were, I am. Uh, And so sometimes working with other people can be problematic. Doing ministry with others can be hard, it can be difficult. People have different gift sets, skill sets, ideas, um, sometimes motives. And we are all at war with this flesh within. Uh, and then it'll come out sometimes. And now, now praise God. I, I didn't. That's not a rebuke about yesterday. That yesterday went wonderful. And from everything I observed, everyone worked well together. Um, but if you've been on this planet long enough, you know that that's the case. Tyler, thank you, Tyler. It's not up there. <sighs> Appreciate that, brother. That's a good sound guy for you. We'll try this again. It it tried. That- like magic, like magic. Um, and so this morning, as we, we're we going to, chapter five, we could um, frankly cover the whole chapter in one sermon, um, but I didn't think you wanted to be here till two, so um, we'll do half of it now. <laughs> you chuckled with a nervous fear. I, <laughs> you, you've heard me. Uh, um, but, but I think we can unpack maybe some of the greater details in depth by taking our time to work through half of it this morning, and then the next half next Sunday. You know, Nehemiah is in in a larger context all about God's faithfulness and how God is faithful to his promises ultimately. And he has promised to restore the Jews to Israel. Uh, He has promised to bring them out of Babylonian captivity, and here they are. And so Nehemiah just kind of tells that story. And in the larger Uh, we call it the meta-narrative or the big picture story of the Bible, you get to the end of Nehemiah and you actually realize this. You can have the walls and you can have the temple. You can have a restoration of the culture. Um, But unless God changes the hearts of his covenant people, it won't work. And, And it really sets the stage, frankly, as you finish the Old Testament, of craving a right king and a right culture but with the right people. And that's called the church. Uh, It's redeemed people gathered together under the banner of one king, creating a new culture that's all about Jesus. And so Nehemiah, there's so much here for us. But this morning, understanding how do people interact with God's faithfulness. Uh, It would seem like when we think about faithfulness that it would be automatic. Uh, If God's made a promise and he's going to follow through on it, then we would trust it. But what does trust really look like? What, is it, what does it mean to trust? And and so really want to help us think through that. There's this, and that's a misspelling up there. That's not the Cyrillic spelling. But there was this phrase, there's a Russian proverb, dovre no provre, which is translated as trust but verify. Now, Ronald Reagan made that phrase, phrase very, very famous during the Cold War in the early 80s because he had a Russian scholar who was coming in and sit down. She would sit down with him. She's teaching about Russian culture because, frankly, Reagan wanted to understand his enemy, um, and, and primarily Gorbachev. And she taught him this, this proverb of trust but verify. Its origination is actually in Lenin. Uh, Lenin included it something like seven times in one of his treatises that he wrote, Stalin as well. And, and so, honestly, when the Russians use it, it's a tongue-in-cheek joke. Uh, a little bit of a, mo- a mockery of some of the original Marxist ideology of trust, but verify a way of saying that, like looking at somebody in, in our culture, almost winking at them, yeah, I trust you. Um, and, and Reagan took it and made it very popular. Is that what trust is? Is trust the sense that I believe you, but I don't really believe you? I don't really buy into what you're selling me. I, I'm going to believe you. We're shaking our head this way. Do you believe me? And you're going, yes. And is that, how, is that what trust looks like? If someone's made a promise to us, is that what trust really looks like? Um, maybe you're one of those people that you tend to, by nature, to be very skeptical. Or maybe you're one of those people that, um, that folks have pulled the wool over your eyes a lot of times, so or they've joked with you, or they've teased you, or they've, they've made promises they haven't fulfilled. And so when you think about trust, um, you think about it in that kind of context, I believe you, but not really. Is that what trust looks like? Tim Hansel, uh, he tells, he's a, he's a preacher, he tells this story. One day his son, Zach, and he were out in the country. They were climbing around some cliffs, and he heard a voice from far above him yell, Hey, Dad, catch me. And he turned around. His son was already in the air. His son screamed as he jumped, with his dad not even looking. And, and so Tim turns around, and he sees his son, and at the very last second, grabs his son, they both are knocked to the ground, they go rolling around, and, and he could barely even talk, the wind's knocked out of him. Finally gets himself together and looks at his son, Zach, and exasperated, Zach, why would you do that? Can you give me a good reason why you would do that? And his son just looked at him with the calmness only a child could have and said, sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance, Zach's complete confidence was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because his dad could be trusted. He lived with utter abandon. No fear because he could trust his father to catch it. Is that what trust looks like? Complete abandon. Total ambition for the sake of God because we can trust our father. But trust is not nearly so clean as we get older, is it? Because if you live long enough, you've been burned. And if we're really honest, sometimes we feel like we've been burned by God. We trusted and it didn't work out. We have been failed and we have failed other people. There's an old story about a man who falls off a cliff on his own and he's going to die. But on the last moment, he throws out his hand and he grabs a branch and he's hanging onto this branch. And it's taking everything he has to grab this branch and he looks below and certain death awaits him if he let go. And he yells up, hey, is there anyone up there? And he hears a voice from above him say, yes. So he yells back, who are you? And the voice calls down, it's God. And I'm here to save you. Great, what do you want me to do? Let go of the branch. Is there anyone else up there? Um, I think lots of times that's the way we function. And we think about trust. And so what is trust really? Well, Nehemiah, again, is all about God's faithfulness. He's promised his children many things. He said before he ever sent them into captivity in Babylon, he said, I'm going to bring you back. And Nehemiah is the proof of that. He has told them that the temple would be rebuilt. He's told them that they would have a, a return of the community to be able to flourish again. Here they are rebuilding the walls, and they don't even know this, but they're rebuilding the walls that in a few hundred years, Jesus is going to ride through on a donkey as the king coming into the city. The righteous heir of David who had conquered the city thousands of years before, Jesus will come in as the king riding on uh, the foal of a colt, uh, this, this tiny donkey, because he doesn't need a war horse any longer. God is faithful to his promises. And God's faithfulness is a call to you and I to trust. And, and obviously when we're saved, when we come to that moment where we see our sin, and that we can't save ourselves. There's no good work we can do to make ourselves right with God. We not, may not be as bad as everybody else, but but we're bad to the bone. We're all sinners, and we see that I'm a sinner and I'm condemned to an eternal hell and, and I can't save myself. And I have to trust in that moment. I have to faith believe that God has said He is a holy God and He will judge me, but He also loves me and He sent His Son to die for me. And if I will believe, if I will trust, turn from my sin and follow, then I'll be saved. And so salvation is all about a call to trust in his faithfulness to his promise to his promises. But what does that trust look like? Does it look like trust but verify? Does it look like living a life of total ambitious abandon and freedom? Does it look like confidence only only when it seems like God's methods are clear to us and what we want instead of asking us to let go of some branch? Well, this chapter which is all about conflict gives us remarkable insight into what life looks like when we trust God's faithfulness, and then I would argue this morning that life looks like love when we trust God's faithfulness. If you want to take a, a temperature of your trust, if you want to find out how well do I really trust God and his faithfulness, then you can actually take measure of your love. And it will be the revealer. And so what's going to happen is this: we're actually going to see a public court case in Nehemiah 5 that's going to unpack that. The first half is a court case, and the second half of chapter 5 is Nehemiah's demonstration of how he lives radically different, which will be a call to us next week of living lives of radical generosity um, in a wartime, mind, more wartime sense. But this first half, it's a court case, and it's going to be in the negative. We're going to see people who want to claim they trust God's faithfulness, but they don't really trust it, it, it is very much trust but verify. And it's a revealer to us. And so we can walk through the court case this way. Uh, we can, First of all, we can see the litigants. And so we'll read through these first 13 verses just as we go through these folks. Give me a chance to kind of explain who they are. And so if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 5, just follow along as I begin reading here. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. It's interesting that it throws the wives in there. Um A little bit of curiosity, and it could be because they're working right alongside their husbands. It could be because they're feeling the greatest impact of what they're about to complain about. We're not entirely sure, but um, at minimum, Nehemiah is trying to tell us, because these are from his journals, what the totality of this complaint was, and it's like everybody's mad. Uh, This is not a good way to run your home, but we've all heard the phrase of mama ain't happy and nobody happy. Um, that's not godly or biblical way to run the home. But the reality at the end of the day is a man doesn't even want to live. He'd rather live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a brawling woman. Like, like at the end of the day, you want some unity in your home. So if, if wife's not happy, husband's for sure not going to be happy. Nobody's happy. Let's make some people happy. They're mad. And so they're griping and they're complaining. Uh, but is this a legitimate complaint? People can whine and complain about all kinds of things. So what's the complaint? Verse 2, for there were those who said with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There's a couple of categories of people here. The first category are day laborers. And what these people did is they, they went around and they were almost, you almost want to think of them as migrant kind of workers. They would go from farm to farm and they would uh, loan out their services. You'd pay them to harvest your crops, you'd pay them to work your fields, for them to sow. To, to weed, to fertilize, to care for, and then ultimately to harvest. Now, it's important the dates are given to us in Nehemiah. This would have been roughly around our calendar time, September October, or excuse me, August, September, which is prime harvest time. This is the final harvesting time. And so these guys that are complaining initially are people that normally would be working in the fields, and when they worked in the fields, they would get paid Um, gold, silver, what have you, but they also were able to take of the crops that they harvested, and that's how they fed their families. Well, these guys have left aside their jobs in order to work at building the walls, and they've left their jobs at the prime earning time in order to build the walls. And because of this, they they don't have the money to buy food. So the first group of people are these day laborers. The second one that we're going to see here are landowners, And they go from verses 3 through 5. There were also those, that's kind of a Hebrew phrase that we translate to let us know now we're talking about a different group. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. It is not in our power to help it, for the other men have our fields and our vineyards. These are landowners. So it's not just the laborers who have left aside to come and build the wall. The people that actually own lots of these farms in the surrounding areas. You might remember from chapter 3, you have people from all kinds of towns and villages and cities around Jerusalem that have come. Some as far as 10, 15 miles, which is a substantial distance in their day, leaving aside their farms in order to work. So they're not even there to supervise the harvest of their crops. They've left to come and do the work. And they don't have a mindset that says, well, those are the kind of people that are used to doing day labor. Let them do the work. Um, but they've said, we can go work also. Look, I'm a preacher by trade. My hands are soft. I got a blister from yesterday. Shed some tears for me, right? Like, um, I woke up this morning sore, right? Like, like I'm not used to spreading mulch all day and, and, and doing these kind of things. And, and so it's good, and I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not complaining, but you got people that are like, I own the farm, but I can go sling some mortar and move some stone. Because building the walls matters. And so they have come. The third group we have, uh, I'll read through verse 6, and then we'll see, him, see this group in verse 7. Verse 6, Nehemiah is speaking. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. These nobles and officials are our third party in this court case these are the wealthy in the land some of them are government officials like nehemiah some of them have been elected to offices others have simply been living here since ezra's day accumulating wealth now that might seem surprising to you if you think a wealth didn't these people just come out of captivity they did but when they went into babylonian captivity it was not like egyptian slavery they were moved To Babylon, and then we had, remember, we have all these changes of kings in Babylon. The Medes and the Persians take over. And when they were in Babylon, they functioned lots more like um, people that have immigrated and now set up a new lifestyle. And so they had freedom to have businesses, uh, to participate in the economy. Uh, That's hinted at in the story of Esther, which takes place about 40 to 50 years prior to Nehemiah, um, where Haman wants to kill the Jews. And his argument to the king, to the people, let there be a day when they can go and kill the Jews and plunder them. The motive for Haman was he hates the Jews. The motive for everyone else was going to be to get their money and their goods. Historians tell us, secular historians, the very first bank, the way we would think of banks, someone you take your money to, they hold your money, um, and someone that you might even be able to borrow money from that's not a noble or official, the very first bank was a Jewish bank in Babylon during this time. And so some people had done very, very well in Babylon. And even when they'd come back with Ezra and and then some with Nehemiah, they had come with wealth. And so with wealth comes power and means and safety and security. And so these are primarily the guys that there's going to be a problem with. And so on one hand we have laborers, Uh, One side of the court case, we have laborers, day laborers, and landowners. And then on the other side of the court case, we have nobles and officials. And so Nehemiah is now going to get involved. When it says in verse 7, he took counsel with himself, and he brought charges against the nobles and officials, it's an interesting turn of phrase. And it literally means he opens a court case. And so he gathers everybody together, And you have the nobles and officials, and now Nehemiah is going to represent the laborers and the landowners. This is really important because Nehemiah, the only dog he has in this fight, is as the governor, and he cares for the oppressed. He's not personally being impacted financially by what's happening. His only driving goal is God's glory. That's it. The reason that's important is because it's always going to be easy for the nobles and officials to accuse the landowners and the laborers of just being selfish as well. Take note, sometimes, and and I would say all the time when it impacts God's glory, it's your fight to get involved in. If God's glory is at risk, God's glory is at stake, get involved. And Nehemiah is not afraid to get involved here. There's lots to risk for Nehemiah by getting involved. The nobles and the officials have the money and the power. If anyone could try to get rid of Nehemiah, it's these guys. If anyone could try to influence everybody else, it's these guys. But Nehemiah is willing to stand on behalf of the laborers and the landowners because what's being done to them is wrong. And he is unwilling to stand by and just let wrong happen. He gets involved. And so then let's think about then what are the crimes that are happening so we can go back through the text and we can work through that to understand why this is such a big deal. Verse 2, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Well, the day laborers literally have no food. They, they've left off their job, which where they would harvest crops. This is prime harvest time. They are not making the income they would make by doing the work, nor are they able to reap the rewards of the crops. And so this is like a migrant family, and they have lots of kids. They emphasize our sons and our daughters. So think large family that normally would go and loan out their services during a, a harvest season to a farm. They've heard the cry from Nehemiah, we need to build the walls. And they've said, well, we're leaving. Well, we don't have much money. This is the money we've stockpiled from last year. that's supposed to last us all year. I don't care. It matters what God's community is. We're going to leave. We're going to go do ministry at our own cost. And while they're there, the wife's coming. She's saying, sweetie, we need some bread. Okay, well, here, let's let's ration out our funds. It's only 52 days. It tells you um, how quickly their money ran out. And now suddenly they don't have any more money to buy bread. So maybe husband, dad is out there working lots with the kids. And if the wife, she doesn't have infants there, she's able to come and help. And they don't have any food to eat when they go home. And so they're slinging mortar next to these other people working. Maybe even some of the landowners and some others. And they get to the end of the day and they don't even have enough money to buy dinner that night. And so, to Nehemiah, they're they're literally saying we're we're going to starve building the wall. So they'd go to the market, and the people that do have the grain are unwilling to give it to them. It's a market economy. Need drives pricing. It's just the way it works. Work just in their day, just like it does in ours. Um, price goes up the greater the demand. Uh, you know, low demand, low pricing. If nobody wants it, you can't sell the thing. Uh, I was joking with my family the other day. There's a, uh, because I'm a car guy, there's a 65 Falcon with a brand new 302 motor in it. Great drivetrain. Uh, New mag wheels. Uh, I'm like, man, that's the car I want. Guy selling it for six grand. That's astoundingly low. I'm like, that needs to be my next car. It's located in Southern California, and nobody lives within an hour and a half of this guy. That's why he's only charging six grand for it. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants to get, get there to get it. If you tried to sell that same car here in Columbia, easily 12 to 15. Supply and demand. So these people don't have food, and so the grain prices have been jacked up because everybody is right here in Jerusalem trying to buy food. And these people have no money, they have nothing to eat. And so there's this crime happening. Verses 3 and 5, he unpacks the crimes that the landowners are experiencing. There were those also who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, it's not clear to us if there was a famine in the land um, as much as what they're identifying is not enough bread to go around for all the people that are here. And that's most likely what's actually happening. It's that same thing. Uh, it's like here in Colombia, when they when they when the weatherman says he smells snow four states away, we might get a dusting, and all the bread milk is gone, right? And we actually have to have laws to prevent price gouging. And what they're saying is it's that we needed we needed food as well. Our, we're not home to harvest our own crops, so they actually had to mortgage their property to have enough money to buy. Food And it's more, they went thinking a loaf of bread costs two bucks, they get to Jerusalem and they're charging seven fifty dollars for it. And so the money didn't go as far as they thought it would. And so they've had to mortgage their property, and the people they would have mortgaged it to are the nobles and the officials. Verse 4, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. This is a double whammy. See, what they would have done is they would have gone to the nobles and officials, and they would have said... Uh, We need to have money so that we can buy food to eat while we're helping to build the walls. Nobles said, I'm glad to help you out. Um, Why don't we do a loan against your house and your farm? The guy's like, okay, you know, you're the ones with the power and the wealth. And so they mortgage it to them. And then the nobles and officials looked at them and said, oh, and by the way, here's the tax bill that you owe that you need to pay me. And I mean, they're just like, they're getting in these guys' pockets every way they possibly can. Uh, The Persians were noted for their high taxation rates. It was not uncommon for the tax to be required to be sent back to the king of 40% of whatever you got. And so if you think about a farmer, 40% is just astronomically high. And then on top of that, the nobles and officials would charge more because that's how they made their living. So they're like the tax collectors of Jesus' day. Well, you owe the Persian king this much money i don't have that money we'll just take it out of the property you mortgage so here well now they didn't have enough money to buy their own food these guys are just robbing them blind and so what's the solution verse five now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers our children as their children yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have already been enslaved But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so they had something that existed in their day called debt slavery. Either because they needed the money to buy the food or to pay the taxes, they actually were selling their own children into slavery. And so the noble official looked at him and said, well, now here's the little bit of money you have to buy grain. They were like, that's not enough to feed my family. Your family? You have a family? Yeah, I've got like five sons and three daughters. Well, you know, I could really use some house slaves how about this? You sell me your three daughters, debt slavery, I'll give you the money, eventually you'll be back to your property, but able will buy them out. Okay, well we got to eat, and I'll feed them, and I'll clothe them, and I'll take care of them. And so they're literally, so that they could build the walls, so that they could fulfill God's command, so that they could see his faithfulness, these people are driven to the point of even selling their own children into slavery, which for quite frankly, they're seeing they're never going to be able to buy them out of. Because now they're not going to own their house to even get the harvest to be able to buy their children out. And so they're coming to Nehemiah with these complaints. And so Nehemiah, verse 6, I was very angry. Now it's interesting because if you were to track anger in Nehemiah, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem get angry. They get angry because the people dare to build the walls. They get ripping mad that Nehemiah has the plan. They get even angry that the people get involved. And then they get super angry when the people aren't scared of them. This is when Nehemiah gets angry. And when Nehemiah gets angry about, he gets angry about the injustice of what is happening and the absolute selfishness of what is taking place. So Nehemiah is very angry when he heard their outcry and these words, and he took counsel with himself. And so it's very simply, what am I going to do about this? because I'm ripping mad, and I'm not sure exactly what to do. So he brings charges against the nobles and officials. And so this is a court case. He says, you know what? I'm going to put them on trial in front of everybody. And on one side, we're going to have the landowners and the day laborers. On the other side, we're going to have all of these nobles and officials. In the opening accusation, he says, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And so this would be like the opening charges. And so the foundational charge is they're charging interest. Now, here's what's interesting about that. In all the list of crimes I just gave you, refusing to sell bread, jacking up the prices, mortgaging property, buying their children into debt slavery, charging them some interest on the money you loan them, which seems like the lowest crime charging interest. I mean, what's the big deal? If you loan somebody money, if I'm going to loan you I'll just throw out numbers, right? If I'm going to loan you loan you 10 grand, if I left it in the bank, I might, you know, our current banking system might make 0.003% interest. If I put it in the stock market, might get an average annual return of 4 to 5%. If you have a great stock broker, maybe 6% or more depending on the stock market. And so, if I'm going to take my ten grand out of the system, the banking system, and I'm going to loan you 10 10 grand, it's costing me money. I'm losing money because I'm not making my money on my money like I normally be able to make it. It seems, you know, what? I'll even charge you way less interest. I'm going to charge you one percent interest. It seems like charging interest is the look. Aren't I being a good steward of the money God gave me? That actually seems like the lowest crime. And so, it's fascinating. That that's what Nehemiah's accusation is. Why would you do that? You know, if, if someone's being charged criminally, they love to stack charges. Uh, prosecutors love to do this, um, and we get it. And so if you bring somebody in, and, and they've committed all these crimes, they go and they rob a bank with a gun, and, and they shoot one of the, the security guard and kill them, And then they flee away, and as they were fleeing away, the stoplight camera, or the red light camera, got a picture of the license plate. I guarantee you when they get in the court case, the prosecutor doesn't say, uh, Joe Smith is charged today for running a red light. He's going to say Joe Smith is charged with capital murder. And then you're going to go all the way down through the charges, and the last one listed is going to be speeding running a red light. Nehemiah starts with what seems like the lowest. And here's why you he would do that. Because if I can prove that you do this, and this is evil, then all it does is make your heart say, then how much more evil is all the rest of this nonsense that you're doing? And so that's where he starts. His opening charge is you are charging interest. This is the opening of accusation. If there had been no rebuilding, if there had been no return of Ezra and now Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, if there had been no faithfulness of God, I will return my people to their city, to their land. I will give it back to them. If none of that happened, there was never an opportunity for this crime. These people are parasites on ministry. It's an opportunity to glorify God, and they see it as a chance To make a dime. They're willing to see families go without food so that they can make a little bit extra money. And the only reason these circumstances exist is because you have people in the land that are burdened to do what God wants them to do. They're unwilling to give the food to the laborers. There's every indication they're charging more than what's necessary. They're charging interest on mortgages and on loans that are being made, they're taking their children into debt slavery. And so Nehemiah is burdened to prove that the problem here is not just illegal, it's ethically and morally wrong. And so he goes about doing it a couple of different ways. First of all, as Nehemiah opens the court case, he says that it violates the law concerning interest. Why does he make that accusation, you are exacting interest each from his brother? Because in Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, it actually says this, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. In other words, anything that normally you'd charge interest for, don't you dare do it to one of your brothers in God's covenant community here in Israel. Verse 20, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now... The law of God is being given in such a way here to God's covenant community to show what love looks like. You see, when when you have Israel and you, God's covenant community, what that means is these are the people that I've made a covenant with. I will be your God. You'll be my people. It's a mixed lot. There are some that are believers. There are many who are not. And so I'm going to put this all these laws in place for you. And all these laws are intended to govern your behavior and the way you deal with me and the way you deal with one another. Because in the absence of the laws, frankly, there can be zero confidence that anybody anywhere is going to actually choose to love God and love others more than themselves. That's why in the New Testament community, you know what the law is? The law is the law of love, Galatians 5. That's the law that rules us. What's the law that rules us? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. In the Old Testament, you have all these laws and they really begin to define where sin is at and what's evil and what's righteous. And so it's by the law that we know that we're sinners because we're not prone to do this kind of behavior. And so we're not prone to say, oh, you need this money for that. I have the money. Yes, you can borrow this money. The stewardship is there. It's not that anytime somebody asks you the money, you just give it to them. There is stewardship there to recognize, oh, they, these people run themselves into debt, and they they're not making wise purchases. Um, all they want is the next new shiny bright thing, and so that's. So no, I'm not loaning them the money. But the reality is, it's an agrarian culture, and so sometimes your crops go bad, and your neighbors don't. Sometimes the dad in this family gets sick, and then this one he doesn't. And so they run into a hard season. They need some help. And so you say, you know what? Yeah, I Yeah, here, here, I loan you the money. Here's the agreement, and, and you'll pay it back. Great. But you don't charge them interest. You don't try to make money on somebody else's need in the covenant community. That's his point. They don't exist for you to make a profit on them. And so God gave them that law. So the reality is as much as we might be prone for that to rub us the wrong way, that was God's law for the nation of Israel in order to teach them to love their neighbor as themselves. And so if there's another member of God's covenant community, they needed the money, then loan it to them without you trying to make money on it. Anyone, anyone can find, if we if we then take that concept, that truth, and we bring it to modern day, here's where the connection is, because it's not a one-for-one money connection. But there is a connection here, an understanding that as you deal with other people, they don't primarily exist for you to make a dime off of them. people are not walking this planet for you to take advantage of. For you to get from. Ministry moments can actually be open doors for selfish pursuits. When a person has an open, obvious need, suddenly it can become a moment for somebody else to take advantage of. There can be vacuums in places where suddenly, well, I can take control. And they make it all about them. I was in a meeting one time years ago, years ago, well over a decade ago. And it was a group of people in a room and we couldn't figure something out. There was a decision we needed to make and we, we weren't at odds. And maybe you've been in this kind of a moment where um, nobody felt like they had a great idea. And nobody liked any of the ideas that they themselves had. You ever been in that kind of spot, uh, where you're like, "Man, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what we should do. The best I can come up with is X, and I don't even think X is a good idea. But that's all I got." And it just was a hard moment that way. And so you're not at conflict, but you just can't figure it out. And then one guy, one guy, he started just dropping. Communication bombs is what I would describe them as. Communication conversation enders. He started talking like this. He'd say, maybe you guys all think I'm stupid for suggesting this, but what about this? That's a communication ender because how do you now disagree with them? Because if you disagree with them, you know what you said? You are stupid. Maybe you guys think I'm all, I should just, I remember. maybe you just think I should just leave the meeting, but I think we should do this. And you're like, I actually don't want you to leave the meeting. I think you've got some wisdom to you. I just don't necessarily agree with this. Like, that's a moment, and and God bless this dear gentleman, but but I think in that moment what he didn't realize was there was an open vacuum, and instead he was making it about him. I'm now going to control. That's at the heart of what these guys are doing. It's ministry, but if it's not my way, then it's not going to happen. And so they're charging interest because an opportunity becomes a selfish endeavor for them to make a profitability on it. And so that's the accusation, but he goes on from there. It violates the law concerning debt slavery, verse 8. And he said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. <laughs> so what they <laughs> Remember, Nehemiah and his brothers had some money, and we'll see that in the next half of the chapter next week. But they were some of those that made money. When we think of the cupbearer to the king, don't just think medieval times. um, And that's what Nehemiah was, the cupbearer, as this guy that just stands there kind of silent and takes the glass and sips the wine. Oh, it's good. Here we go. But he would have managed um, and overseen all those that were cooking and preparing everything. And so he had some managerial skills, some clear administrative skills, some clear leadership gifting skills. And so Nehemiah, in the process of that, had accumulated, accumulated some degree and measure of wealth, he and his brothers. And so some of what they had done, and others, not just Nehemiah and his brothers, but they and others that had money, when they had come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, they became aware that there was all these people that were like, well, why can't they come help build the wall? Oh, well, they're sold out to the, to, to the Samaritans. What do you mean sold out? Well, they were sold into debt slavery. Well, there are Jewish brothers and sisters. They've never met these people. There are Jewish brothers and sisters. Well, why can't they get out of debt slavery? Well, it's how do you work yourself out of debt slavery? It's actually how our modern-day sexual slavery practice works. You have all these families in India. They have children. They can't feed them. And they'll sell their daughters into sex slavery. What an abhorrent evil Evil feels like the word isn't strong enough. Evil practice. And here's the, here's the here's the lie. Sell them to us and, and instead of, instead of rupees. We'll give you ten thousand dollars for them. And then once she works that off, then she'll be free. And they go the next year and they say, Well, she's done all this. How much has she earned? Well, $150. What are you talking about? She should have earned 4000 dollars by now. Yeah, but we had to pay for this for him. We had to buy medicine for him. We had to do this and we had to do this and we had to do this. They always find ways to keep them enslaved. It was just the same way back then. And so Nehemiah would go and say, How much is it going to cost to to get Jodab and his and his brothers and children out? Well, that'd be five thousand. They throw this price out, thinking they'll never be able to pay it. Nehemiah goes, here's five thousand. They're free. Here they come. If you've ever read Les Mis or watched the film or see the Broadway show, it's like a Valjean moment where he's buying back this little girl out of slavery. And so Nehemiah has brought back bought back Jodeb and his brothers and his children, and then all of a sudden they get there and they don't have money for food, so they go to the nobles and officials. The nobles and officials say, well, I'm sorry, but I can't just give you the, the food. Well, I need money for the food. Okay, well, I see you've got some daughters here sell them to us in debt slavery, and okay, well, at least they'll be here in the city with us. We'll be able to see them every day. Yeah, absolutely. Then they turn right around and sold them back to the Samaritans. Can you imagine? Like, I'll be honest with you. I think Nehemiah actually shows a, a substantial amount of restraint. Because it's like, whip the sword out and start hitting these people. This is evil. And that's what they're doing. Well, the law condemned debt slavery. So the reality is, in the law, it actually gave a provision... For debt slavery to some degree, this is the way it was supposed to work in God's covenant community. You got Steve and Bethany, and they got their three kids, and they own a farm. And then all of a sudden, one year Steve gets really, really sick, and he can't work. And so Bethany and the three kids—they're trying to take care of Dad. They can't manage the farm. They mortgage the farm. Next year, Steve's recovering, but they still don't have enough money to be able to sow crops. And so two of Steve's kids go into debt slavery to provide the money to sow and make the crops work. And you're like, well, see, it's just like that. They're never going to be free. Here's the provision God gave in his law. Every seven years was the year of the Sabbath. Guess what happened on the seventh year? Everybody goes free. And so it had been year seven, and all of a sudden, here's the two kids coming home. They don't owe, and they're free. And that was the way the nation of Israel was supposed to work. So even if something bad happened, it was built into the legal structure so that no one, hear me now, would ever experience what we call generational poverty. There would always be a freedom to go back. There would always be a freedom to have the land back, your property back, your houses back, your kids back. You'd get it all back. Generational poverty would have been devastating. We have generational poverty around the world. Here in the United States in particular, 71% of children raised in poverty will raise their own children in poverty. In other words, it's a cycle that is almost impossible to break. Children that are raised in poverty have a lower cognitive ability. Did you hear me say that? Raised in poverty have a lower cognitive ability. That doesn't mean that a child born to very poor parents, impoverished parents, is born naturally stupider than our kids. But the lack of available health care, education, and nutrition literally shrinks their brains. And so if you live in a world that says, oh no, just because you're born in poverty doesn't mean you can you have to stay in poverty. You can pull yourselves out of it. Well, first of all, First of all, only 29% will. And secondarily, they're starting deep in the ditch with the short end of the stick. Generational poverty is devastating. They're shown to have greater health risks, lower reading rates, inadequate health care, inadequate education system. And so in God's community, he said, I'm going to build a law in that's going to make generational poverty a thing of the past. But these guys defy that. Nehemiah had been on a mission to buy back Jews. They're on the mission to, to, to sell them as slaves. It robs God of his glory. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? In Malachi 3, it makes an interesting similar claim. And Nehemiah's argument here is your behavior it would make everyone else look at us and say, the Jews are just like everyone else on the planet. They are a parasitic group of people that will consume their own for the sake of a few. Malachi 3 says, well, man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And in particular in Malachi's day, they weren't giving to the temple in your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now listen to the flip sides in Malachi as he continues this argument. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. What's the test? The test is this, is God faithful? Because he says, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I just want to point out how Malachi moves between blessing and cursing almost seamlessly. If we don't condemn evil, there's never a need for God's grace. If we don't make his judgment clear and plain, there's no place for repentance. If I don't tell you that you're born a sinner and you're a sinner by choice and your sin condemns you to an eternal hell, you never need the cross of Jesus. I like how Spurgeon put it. Only those with spiritual wounds need heavenly surgery. Nehemiah is bringing the full weight here because they're rebuilding the wall for God's glory and now these nobles have more in common with God's enemies than God's community. His last indictment is not everybody's doing this. Verses 10 and 11. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. The word that he uses for lending there is very different. Uh, There's no interest exacted whatsoever. Nehemiah, I don't know how we're going to have food. We don't have enough food. I I need $20 to buy dinner. Great, here's $20. Here you go. The noble would say $20. Ugh. Just so you know, it's 2% interest a week, and I need some collateral for that. Okay, well, I've got this really nice robe that's been passed down from family members. Great, I'll take that as collateral. Uh, Much bigger money is needed. Well, I'm going to need some collateral. How about you put up your son as collateral? We'll keep him right here in Jerusalem. (coughs) Record scratch. Sell him to the Arabs, to Geshem down south. The Nehemiah's point is not everybody's doing this. Return, verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. The, the, for Nehemiah to give this list, there were different regions around Jerusalem that were known for uh, growing grapes for wine vineyards. Um, There was others that were known for their olive groves. There was others that were known for raising their barley. There was others that were known, uh, regions, for raising sheep. And so Nehemiah basically is pointing out this is happening everywhere. But not everybody is doing it. Not everyone is committing this sinful acts, but some are. How common is it for us to hide our own selfishness behind the selfishness of others? Everybody's doing this. How common is it to amask our laziness by pointing to the laziness of someone else? How regularly do we shelter our failure to love under the umbrella that other people don't love either? Listen, you don't take your cues for how God has called you to love from what everybody else does. You take them from Jesus. How has he called me to love and serve? I'll never forget one of the first jobs I had um, was working super hard one day. And uh, a guy pulled me off to the side and he said, look, you need to slow your roll. I'm like, what are you talking about? I, I, mean, I grew up with a dad. I mean, you worked. He's like, you need to slow it down. I was like, why? He said, you're making the rest of us look bad and it ain't cool you know what, I wasn't making them look bad. Their laziness made them look bad. But they wanted to shelter all of us together and all of us be lazy together. You know what, sometimes in ministry, it's easy to mask our selfishness and laziness under the umbrella that other people are selfish and lazy. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. And so then he brings judgment upon them. Verse 12, I love this. There's this confessional moment. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They own it. They said, you're right. We've done what you said we've done. And so Nehemiah says, as I called the priests, made them swear to do as they promised. The priests are kind of like this objective third party that can hold them accountable to this. Then verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment. That would be like tantamount to us emptying our pockets. He says, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. That's the story. What's that have to do with you and I? God's faithful. What does trusting him look like? There came this time. The prophet Jeremiah was in prison. And he's in prison and bondage in Jerusalem Literally in stocks and in chains, and his cousin comes to him and says, or Jeremiah, I need some money. Um, will you buy my land? And Jeremiah, this is a stupid deal. Like, this is dumb. But Jeremiah goes, yeah, God, tell, God told me I'll buy your land. And so make out the receipts and have them stored in the um, records in the temple. Now, here's why it's so crazy. First of all, Jeremiah's in prison. When you're in prison, trying to do real estate deals doesn't seem like a good plan. Secondarily, Jerusalem is surrounded by the Babylonians when Jeremiah makes this deal. Completely surrounded. They are under siege. The siege gets so bad that, listen now, the Jews start to eat their own dead because they have no food. It's horrific. And Jeremiah is making a land deal while this is happening. On top of that, the land that he buys is located in a town called Anathoth. Anathoth was already overrun and was far to the north of Jerusalem where Jeremiah was never going to see again. So why in the world does Jeremiah buy land outside of a city under siege currently encamped upon by the Babylonians when he has no hope of seeing it? Because he says take the record and put it in the temple because there's going to come a day and God is faithful to his promises and there's going to come a day when he kicks the Babylonians out and we have the land back and I want the record that I believed God would do that now. I believe God is faithful, so I'm going to love my cousin, and I'm going to help him out. And I'm going to prove that God is faithful. And so at his own expense, Jeremiah's expense, where he would have to fund his own feeding in the prison of the day. And who's the last person you're going to feed if you don't have food in in a city? The guy in jail. So he's having to buy his own, but he takes his own money for land he's never going to be on. He's never going to see to prove God is faithful. Why would his cousin come to him knowing this? Because his cousin comes knowing Jeremiah is going to love. Listen, when Jeremiah trusts that my God is faithful, I'm set free to love somebody else at my expense. All of Nehemiah is about God's faithfulness. You know who doesn't really trust his faithfulness? The nobles and officials, because they see it as a moment to protect myself. They see it as a moment to make bank on on what's going on. They see it as a moment to advance myself, not to advance God's kingdom. I can't have it cost me. How much is this going to cost me? Listen, if you approach ministry with a mindset of what is the cost-benefit analysis all the time, and it's about here your heart's revealed you actually don't really trust his faithfulness. You don't really have that confidence. Jesus uses money to demonstrate how well we understand the gospel. Those that have been forgiven much will forgive much. Just like the man who owed, who owed an insurmountable amount of money pictures those that have been forgiven their sin. God has been faithful to love and forgive me, so I'll be faithful to love and forgive others. The way I steward resources like my money will demonstrate if I truly trust God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Did Jesus actually say this? Truly I say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. Can I just ask you, how in the world does that equation work? How does the math work that I come to Jesus, and when I come to Jesus, I lose all these relationships, I lose my property, I lose my inheritance, I lose my job, I lose, lose, lose. Serving Jesus feels like a lot of loss, and then Jesus says, but you'll get it all back here. How does that work? How does he say you lose it here, but you get it here and even more in eternal life? Because do you know what you get when you come to Jesus? You know what you're supposed to get? A community. And so when you come to Jesus, you might lose your land, but guess what you just gained? My land. You might lose your money, but you know what you just gained? My money. Because it's God's, it's not mine. And you just gained the love. And so you may have lost your family. You know what you just just gained? A brother. When you come into God's community, what Jesus is saying is, yes, it will come with persecutions and it will come like apparent loss. But I'm telling you, you gain so much more, a hundred times what you've lost, and even more than that. The only way that happens is if you actually believe those promises. So if you actually believe God is faithful that way, then you're set free to trust him and you're set free to trust him and to love others and to receive the love of God through others. Trust looks like a confidence in God to faithfully restore what is lost. And so you know what you're able to do then? You know how you're able, you know what trust looks like? Trust looks like saying, God, catch me and jumping. You live with abandon as you love him and others because you trust his faithfulness. Or how about this in Matthew 6? If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'll just give you a very tiny testimony, a very tiny testimony of this. I've been married for 18 years. I've never bought a washer and dryer in my life. How? Because when I moved here, my brother-in-law had flipped a house and he had a washer and dryer. He's like, I don't need it. Hey, you want it here? like, great. They were GE, so they ran like a beast. Christmas time, dryers started acting up. I've already changed parts on it, washers. They do have a lifespan. It had become almost like that uh, philosophical question, if you change every board on a ship, at what point does it cease being that ship? Right? So it's like if, if you've already changed this on the dryer, change this on the dryer. And I was like, you know what? President's Day of Sale's coming up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna do President's Day sale. We'll make do till then. My wife's like, yeah, fine. That's you know, we'll do it. On my washing machine, I had a duct tape little sticker. Don't use small load because it didn't work on small load. We were teaching our kids how to wash laundry, so we had a duct tape sticker. No. President's Day comes up. I contacted a brother in the church who who's able to get lots of deals. And he was like, well, how about, a, would you be open to use one? I'm like, well, you know, obviously it depends on the brand and the price. He goes, how about free and Maytag? When you hear free and Maytag in the same sentence, your heart rate goes up. Every time my wife and I walk through our garage, we say, look at God's provision. I don't know, maybe that seems small to you, but you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like God saying, I love you, Steve, and I've got you. Just Trust. You know what it was? It was through a brother in the church from another brother out of the church that I've literally met like twice. That was a, it's an open testimony to God's faithfulness to his children. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves me. And when we believe in his faithfulness, we're set free that it's like, so I'm trusting God over here, and these brothers could make money on me. They could have charged, they, they, they should have charged. In every other economy, they would. But they don't because it's like I just trust God's faithfulness so I can be free to that's what it looks like. You know what trust looks like? It looks like I love you and I'm free to love you because I can believe that he'll be faithful to me. I don't have to take from you. I don't have to live in a self-preserving way. Do you trust God to be faithful? It was all, it will always come out of you like love. Love that costs you. Love that inconveniences you. Love that does not look to make a profit off of others in need. Do you really trust God to be faithful? It will come out of you like unparalleled love that holds loosely to the things of this world, that doesn't see ministry as a means to get ahead, and money or reputation, that rests in his care instead of in your ability. That's what it will look like. It will, look like it will come out of you living truth-like instead of getting revenge upon somebody you trust God who's just, and I can just love God and love them, and he'll be faithful. It will look like stumbling commitments of service to do something that you don't even have confidence to do do, but you know what? God wants you to love him, love others, and you can trust him instead of trying to protect yourself. Life looks like love when we trust God's faithfulness. I just wanted to bring you this morning a message that asks you to take a barometer, a thermometer check of your your trust. And to start linking those concepts in your brain. That every moment that God is giving you an opportunity to love him and love others, it's an opportunity to grow in and reveal, I trust him. Do you trust him?